This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I'll be your host for this channel today. Very excited. Today, we're going to be talking to Holger Dressler, who's an assistant professor of history at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and he's the author of the new book, Coconut Colonialism, Workers and the Globalization of Samoa. Holger, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about your early academic training and your work? How is it that you got interested in the history of workers in 19th century Samoa? I I get the impression that you might not be from Samoa yourself. Right. I'm not. uh, So I'm happy to talk about um, that background. Um, So I was born and raised in Germany. And as a young teenager, um, I got interested in American culture and American history. So I decided to uh, study that at the University of Munich. So I got a master's degree there in American cultural history. And I wrote a master thesis back then um, about a um, phenomenon after the Second World War, namely um, the uh, birth of mixed-race children born to African-American soldiers stationed in West Germany after the war and white German mothers, uh, the so-called occupation children. And uh, as part of that research, I looked sort of into the deeper history of uh, German colonialism, briefly at least. Um, And in that context, I learned about um, kind of a first uh, generation of occupation children born to uh, German settlers in Southwest Africa, which became Namibia, but also to German settlers in other colonies, including those in the Pacific. And Samoa was one of them. So that was kind of the first time I really um, learned a bit, at least, about um, uh, Samoan history. Um, and uh, then I moved to the United States uh, over a dozen years ago, uh, came to grad school, and um, uh, kind of remembered, I think, those connections. And uh, as a German-born um, historian now of the United States, 
I really got interested again in exploring the connections um, between German colonial projects and U.S. colonial projects, uh, and in particular then in the Pacific. Um, so it's kind of a roundabout way to uh, think about Samoan history, which you're right, you know, it was not sort of a natural thing um, to do for somebody from Germany studying U.S. history. Um, but that's how I came about writing about Samoa. And it's been over a decade of, of very, I think, um, fruitful um, and interesting encounters and um, hopefully also a, a, a good book uh, for people to read. So maybe we should just clarify this for some readers who are not expert in Pacific studies. You talk about Samoa as a place that uh, where you can examine the intersection of sort of American and German colonialism and and that's because Samoa has a, an unusual colonial history. Today, there's two places called Samoa. There's the independent country of Samoa, and then there's American Samoa, which is attached to the United States. And, and there was a, a 19th century history of uh, German, American, and British uh, colonial jockeying in this region. Can you just lay out for us a little bit of that history in broad strokes and how it leads into the Samoas today? Sure. So uh, I, I start my book really with um, sketching out the longer history of the first human settlement of the Samoan Islands uh, around 3000 years ago. And um, then zoom in into um, uh, coconut uh, production among Samoans and then um, kind of the beginning of colonialism uh, in the Samoan Islands in the 19th century uh, with missionaries and then traders. So um, European merchants and traders got interested in uh, in the Samoan Islands about sort of the mid-19th century. And around that time, also U.S. Uh, Navy strategists um, got interested in in Hawaii, as you know, and, and in Samoa as well. So um, kind of the colonial history starts about in the in the second uh, quarter uh, in the mid-19th century. Um, and as you say, uh, Samoa is an interesting place to study for many reasons. Um, and one of them is that um, different um, major empires, the so-called great power, great powers um, got interested in Samoa, so the British, the Germans, and the Americans um, by the mid-19th century for various reasons, economic, strategic reasons, um, having to do with the cultural mission there. Um, so uh, there were an escalating series of clashes between these major empires that overlaid and also exacerbated existing political tensions uh, within Samoa itself, uh, within different districts and genealogical lines, um, and chiefly titles. So um, a very sort of complicated and uh, quite violent history then emerges uh, in the wake of um, of that um, beginning of colonization and by the mid-19th century in the second half of the 19th century is full of sort of tension and civil wars um, and varying and changing coalitions. Um, and then by the end of the 19th century, um, there's an agreement among those uh, major powers and the Samoans were never really asked to actually join that debate um, that split control over Apia, the um, major settlement and now the capital of Western Samoa, of Samoa, um, between these three major powers, the Brits, the Germans, and the Americans. Um, that's the so-called tri-dominium, uh, a tripartite form of rule um, uh, that I write about. And it's quite interesting to study, you know, just for the for its um, rarity in, in the global history of colonialism. And um, it's quite uh, weak. It doesn't really solve any problems, at least from the sort of outsider uh, 
colonizer perspective. And it lasts for around 10 years from um, 1889 to the end of the 19th century, when a formal treaty divides the islands um, between Germany and the United States. So the major islands in the West, Savai'i and Opolu, become German Samoa, and then the major island in the east, Tutuila, much smaller than the other islands, and the Manua Islands, even further east, even more smaller, uh, become part of American Samoa. So that's kind of a short history of the long uh, and complicated history that I um, trace in the book, um, but that's kind of the sort of the beginning of the book. My major focus is then on the turn of the 20th century, the late 19th century and the early 20th century up to the First World War. And one of the things I really liked about this book when I read it was your ability to tell the story of both Samoa and American Samoa together. It would have been much easier to just focus on one of those or the other, but you really managed to do both in a way that I think is is very satisfying. And because you speak German, you're able to use a lot of German language sources, which some Pacific historians who are rooted in, uh, you know, American or New Zealand or Australian schools of scholarship, they might not have enough German to do um, work with these sources. Can you just tell me a little bit about some of the archival research you did then? And then I want to make sure to start talking about the Samoans themselves who are the, the stars of your book. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's one of the, I think, motivations for me also to um, to offer this uh, research and to do the research on, on Samoa because of uh, my background and my, you know, my native language is, is German. So I was interested in that and in kind of updating some of the existing work that has been done on German colonialism in, in Samoa, um, incorporating more global perspectives and in particular, also overcoming the colonial divide that you just mentioned between uh, what was uh, Western German, uh, then Western again, and now independent Samoa in the West, and then uh, what is still today American Samoa, an unincorporated territory of the United States, uh, a colony in all but name. So... Um, as you say, oftentimes those histories are told um, following these colonial divides. Uh, the historiographies sort of live in the long shadow of, of colonialism and in the case of American Samoa, in the, in the ongoing present of colonialism. Um, so I was trying to really um, approach Samoan history as, as Samoans saw it also at the time. Namely, as a, as a story of uh, of all of the islands and of the deep and long-standing connections of travel, of genealogical connections, also of tensions, of course, um, that uh, straddled and that even transcended uh, these colonial boundaries that were being drawn um, throughout the nineteenth century and beyond. Um, and then, in terms of the German sources, yeah, I think I've I've read most of the German colonial archive on Samoa. It's it's quite a lot. The the German colonial officials. <laughs> you know, collected a lot of information. Um, it was part of their uh, pr uh, project to legitimize their colonial presence uh, in uh, the Pacific Islands in particular. Um, uh, they've accumulated uh, ethnographic capital, so to speak, uh, to legitimize their presence there. Um, and uh, so that's why there's a lot of information, um, especially on Samoans themselves, on workers um, and so forth. And that's one of the reasons I also um, uh, narrowed down uh, my, my research uh, to the question of labor and to workers themselves, Samoans in particular, but then also migrant workers that came to Samoa. Um, 
there has been other scholarship, of course, as I mentioned on, you know, the German um, side, but um, not really a book in a while. And um, I'm trying to sort of connect uh, uh, the stories of the various Samoan islands uh, in various languages and also uh, together in this book. So um, that, that's what I was trying to do. Oh, I, th I think you succeeded. I th I, the book is um, uh, very clearly written and well-structured. If people have not had a chance to take a look at it, it's also not uh, incredibly long. So I think it's very going to be very accessible for anyone who's interested in thinking about reading it or, or teaching it. So uh, hats off to you for that. Um, you, you know, the subtitle of, this, of your book um, is Workers and the Globalization of Samoa. And um, you were just mentioning the importance of putting Samoa in a global perspective. Uh, you don't portray Samoa in this book as a, an isolated island or a remote area of empire, although you do say very straightforwardly, for instance, that it was very difficult to get mail there, this sort of thing. When you talk about the globalization of Samoa, what is your, what is your argument about the globalization of Samoa? Right. Um, yeah, so uh, that's the subtitle. And I'm really trying to make the case that Samoa was at the center of global history um, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, if you don't know too much about Samoan history, um, you might know that Robert Louis Stevenson, the Scottish writer, um, settled there in the 1890s. Um, and as she died there, and he wrote a famous tract um, called A Footnote to History, um, where he wrote about his involvement and his sort of political analysis of some of those tensions that I mentioned earlier between different Samoan factions and, you know, the uh, kind of outside meddling that exacerbated those. Um, I'm trying to make a case now, uh, by contrast, Samoa is actually at the center. It's far from a footnote uh, to global history, to histories of colonialism, to histories of globalization, to histories of capitalism, actually. Um, so I see working people in Samoa, uh, primarily the Samoans themselves, but then also newcomers from Melanesia, from Micronesia, and also from China, um, as central actors in shaping Samoa's relationship with the rest of the world. Um, and one of the central tensions that emerges at the turn of the century is that colonial powers have their own idea about what globality should mean. Uh, and one could call that colonial globality, and um, other scholars have, have called it as such. Um, and it's a very restricted uh, unidirectional form to think about globalization and kind of the globalized world. And um, it has a long aftermath. Uh, I think, you know, our world uh, still very much bears the marks of this form of col colonial globalization. Uh, but at the same time, I'm trying to argue with this book uh, by looking at Samoa, um, workers there created their own way of relating to the world. And I call that Oceanian globality. So in contrast to this colonial globality that um, colonial officials and capitalists sought to impose on Samoans and other islanders, um, working people in Samoa, I argue, um, shape their own form of Oceanian globality. And I'm indebted to the Oceanian intellectual in Pilehau Ofa um, to think about globality in, in, in such a way. Um, so they, uh, Samoans and working people uh, really try to confront coconut colonialism uh, by shaping their own form of Oceanian globality and by really making this abstract notion of global space a very concrete one. Um, embedded in their 
existing cultural practices and also emphasizing relationality, um, reciprocity and respect. So um, that's kind of the, one of the major arguments that I try to make in the book. And that's why I also ended up in the, in the title of the book. Uh, workers were really crucial uh, in that process. Um, yeah, they were also crucial um, in shaping anti-colonial resistance. I'm happy to talk more about that um, uh, maybe later on. Yes, oceanic globality. That really, that is a, a word that I saw jumping from the page at several points. And uh, you mentioned Apeli Ha'ofa, his, his concept of our sea of islands, for people who aren't familiar with it, is that um, the vast spaces of the ocean connect people who live in the Pacific rather than separating them. And that their natural way of being is uh, one of connection, of travel and migration. Um, and that's become very, very influenced, influential in the Pacific and in Pacific studies. Uh, and I, I see you playing off of that, and you're even sort of taking it to another level because you're looking at um, Samoans who are not just um, traveling around the Pacific, but they're they're traveling globally. And then indeed, as you've just mentioned, the globe is coming to Samoa in the sense of workers from China or from other areas. And then in the book, you give us examples of different kinds of workers and how those workers took the the world that colonialism gave them and um, tried to remake it in their in their own way, according to these these concepts of reciprocity um, and other concepts that you mention. Um, I'm wondering what would be a good place to start? Maybe the chapter on um, ethnographic performers. That's a good example of Samoans um, traveling the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how ethnographic performers were help work to create their own oceanic globality? Sure. Yeah, um, that's uh, my third chapter, and it's called uh, Performers. And um, in that chapter, which is maybe a little bit um, uh, surprising to have that in the book, I got the, I got some of that feedback already uh, because um, uh, one does not usually think um, of ethnographic show performers as a group of workers. But what I'm trying to do in the book is to actually argue: no, they actually were. Uh, they were, among other things, also performative workers, cultural workers of a kind. And um, over time, um, some of the same questions and tensions that emerged, say, on copra plantations in Samoa itself, actually also characterized uh, their workscape, um, their working environment. So I trace uh, a series of um, ethnographic show troops that um, traveled to Europe and North America at the turn of the 20th century as part of these ethnographic shows. Um, they came to the U.S., for example, to World's Fairs, um, famous visit to the Chicago uh, World's Fair in 1893. That's one of the more famous World's Fairs. And Samoans were there as well. They had their own Samoan village. Uh, I have an image of that in the in the book. Um, and um, what I'm trying to do in this in this chapter is argue that um, beyond 
um, uh, sort of one way of seeing these ethnographic shows is to to see them as a form of uh, colonial exploitation, uh, sort of a colonial gaze exploiting workers, um, exploiting colonized people, people of color more broadly, exhibiting them uh, in front of metropolitan audiences, um, uh, exposing them to you know an uh, exotic and even erotic um, gaze and so forth. Um, that's all very true. That's also happening with the Samoan performers. Uh, but what is also happening, and that's what I'm trying to argue in the in the chapter, is that the Samoans themselves, at least over time, come to reinterpret their travels as a form of diplomatic travel, as a form of diplomatic mission even, um, where they pursue their own interests um, beyond the radar of um, these sort of colonial expectations about what the colonized performers you know, should represent. So I write about, for example, in Chicago, um, just to fill that in with an example um, about the Samoans uh, mingling with the Hawaiian hula dancers who were just next door uh, on the midway. And uh, they chat with each other, probably in English, maybe also in some with sprinkles of Hawaiian and Samoan, which are not so you know different in terms of uh, their basic language. Um, and I argue that they kind of create a Polynesian middle ground there uh, in the midway places um, beyond the expectations of the you know show organizers and impresarios um, who wanted to have um, a form of sort of exotic slumming uh, for you know metropolitan audiences and similar things happen uh, on their tours in Europe yes that's right you describe these European tours as um, on the one hand being organized by white entrepreneurs and as a as a part of a display of indigenous people which, many of us would find, you know, pretty unsettling and immoral. But for some of the Samoans who were organizing it, uh, especially the Matai, the chiefs, this was their way to meet the Kaiser and to uh, engage with European royalty and European leaders the way um, as equals, because they they both they both saw themselves as, as highly ranking and as exactly the sort of people that the Kaiser would would want to meet since they were so important in Samoa and, and uh, had Matai titles. That's right. And um, to give you an example from the um, sort of European side of those travels, um, at one of the earlier uh, ethnographic show um, travels of the Samoans to Germany, uh, basically, just after uh, formal annexation uh, in summer 1900, uh, one of the Samoan Matai uh, Tuvale, Teu Tuvale, actually got to meet the German Emperor Wilhelm II um, at a navy parade in northern Germany, and um, quite interestingly. One of the empresarios, you know, spoke um, Samoan, so he was able to translate, and uh, they chatted for a while. Uh, Willem II and Tuvale um, had sort of friendly conversation, talked a little bit about um, um, uh, their presence there, and uh, a few weeks later, the, the German emperor sent um, a golden wristwatch. Um, to the German consul in, in Apia um, to be sent to um, family members and then the returning Samoans later on. Uh, and the Samoans uh, themselves presented uh, ceremonial gifts uh, to the German Kaiser. So, you know, in one way, one can read this as, um, you know, maybe a, a form of, um, you know, internalization of the, of the sort of German colonial claims on the Samoan islands and, you know, an acknowledgement of the sovereignty um, of uh, German colonial in Samoa. But on the other hand, 
It's also a way in which Samoans fitted in uh, those travels uh, in existing cultural practices, including this diplomatic etiquette and uh, the practice of malanga, which is uh, the Samoan term for travel and diplomatic missions and even more broadly mobility. Um, so over time, um, and, and they've, they've been traveling quite a lot over the turn of the century, um, Samoan men in particular, sort of in the, in the leadership of those tours, um, insist on meeting with diplomatic counterparts wherever they go and um, making a case for uh, Samoan culture and also uh, Samoan sovereignty, actually, uh, on those travels. Um, uh, so that's kind of the, the larger point that I'm, I'm trying to put across in this in this chapter. We see this in Hawaii as well. The um, kings and the queens of Hawaii always saw themselves as articulating with European royalty and uh, exchanged gifts with them, visited them. Uh, so I, I suspect this is part of a much broader sense the Pacific Islanders had that they were active uh, participants in the world. And, you know, I suppose on the, yeah, uh, I suppose on the one hand, you know, um, you're probably never going to run out of negative things to say about colonialism. But on the other hand, one of the things I think that your book shows is that uh, is a very complicated project full of currents and countercurrents and, you know, a, a very simplistic and reductionist approach to history, which, which can see um, colonialism as always evil and indigenous people as always inevitably victims. That kind of viewpoint has to ignore a lot about Samoa and maybe other places in order, in order for it to be true. It seems like that's one of the points you were trying to make with the book. Have I, have I got that right? Yeah, that's of course you know um, uh, you know a challenging sort of conversation, uh, particular for you know somebody like me who's you know German born, German raised, uh, and now based in the United States. So you know I come from a former you know colonial power in Western in Western Samoa, and I reside in a country that still controls. Um, the eastern parts of those islands. So I'm quite aware of the sort of positionality from which I write. Um, and uh, yeah, for me, it's more about sort of emphasizing the um, local, the Samoan, the islander ways of, you know, engaging with um, outside forces, with the Papalangi, with the, you know, foreigners that, you know, uh, emerge um, on those uh, these islands in the 19th century. Um, so for me, it's more of an emphasis even on the continuity of Samoan culture uh, through colonialism, um, uh, rather than of seeing it sort of, you know, in a positive, negative light. Um, uh, you know, Samoans themselves, I think, you know, have quite a, you know, a nuanced, of course, understanding of, uh, of those experiences. Um, you know, thinking about the performers, their families actually were quite keen on collecting and preserving some of the items that their fellow family members brought back from their travels. And uh, there's quite a sort of family memory also among those um, participants and their family members about that. And uh, there's a sense of pride there, um, partly because of, you know, those were global travels. This is, you know, as far as any Samoan had traveled um, in a long time, um, uh, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. And um, uh, one should never forget that those, you know, travels were uh, initiated and enabled uh, under these colonial circumstances, and they served particular purposes. Um, but at the same time, Samoans also, you know, use these opportunities um, to pursue their own projects and shape sort of their own form of oceanic globality. That's what that's what I'm trying to trying to argue here. 
You mentioned the families. For this book, did you did you go to Samoa and interview descendants of some of these workers? Um, how, how did that work out? Right. Yeah. So no, I spent uh, I spent months in in, in Samoa, not as much as I as I wanted to. Um, partly because many of the historical archives, you know, and I'm, I'm writing about the turn of the 20th century. Um, that's actually where much of the at least written information was housed. Um, I did talk, of course, to Samoans and some of the family members also um, connected to those uh, performances, ethnographic shows, uh, and um, other descendants also of plantation workers um, and some of the contract workers. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's why where I found out basically, you know, that there's this complicated um, and quite um, you know ambivalent even um, memory of uh, especially the German colonial period. Um, which is, uh, you know, quite quite startling to think about um, as a German-born historian of of, of the Pacific um, studying uh, the Samoan Islands, and uh, it's partly to do, I think, with you know what came after um, New Zealand. Um, took over during the First World War, and there was a devastating Spanish flu uh, pandemic right after the First World War that really wreaked havoc uh, in Western Samoa and much less so in American Samoa. So that really, I think, um, tainted the New Zealand military presence and also um, kind of romanticized or you know valorized the the German colonial period right before, even though that was, you know, no less violent and, um, and undermining of some more political autonomy. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was quite interesting to sort of to, to, to think about. And, um, um, I'm in close touch with, you know, some historians trying to, um, uh, keep these connections, um, alive historically and also, um, in the present. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that um, New Zealand period and uh, how it led up to Mao. I know that that's sort of one of the contributions of your book is showing the precursors to the Mao movement. Uh, most people who are listening to this, they probably think of New Zealand as the land of you know, hobbits, uh, socialized medicine, um, indigenous reconciliation with Maori people. They, they probably don't think of the New, Zealand's, New Zealanders as as colonizers of Polynesia. Um, but this is uh, what happened when uh, New Zealand took over the administration uh, of after, at the I guess at the beginning of World War I, took over the administration from the Germans. Can you just maybe um, tell us a little bit more about that and what Mao was and how your work shows um, the precursors of it? Sure. Yeah. So this is where I kind of end my, my book with the end of the First World War in the early 1920s. So um, I haven't done direct research for this book um, on the 1920s um, and the Mao itself, this um, anti-colonial uh, mass movement. Uh, uh, Ole Mao means um, having an opinion or holding fast to an opinion in, in Samoan. Um, so it's the Samoan anti-colonial decolonial movement of the 1920s. And um, yeah, um, just to sort of back up a little bit, um, the New Zealanders, ran basically their own sub-imperial projects under the British Empire in the kind of nearby South Pacific, uh, in the Cook Islands, uh, um, in other neighboring islands, and then also in, in Samoa. And um, 
uh, as you say, the New Zealanders take over from uh, Germany at the very beginning of the First World War. It's one of the first acts of the First World War uh, that the New Zealanders, uh, backed up by British Marines, land in Apia um, with a sort of overwhelming show of force. There's only a, you know, a few dozen um, German uh, soldiers there anyway, so they don't put up a fight. Um, and uh, the Kiwis take over and occupy Western Samoa under military and administration dur uh, during the war. Then after the war, uh, there's the Spanish flu epidemic that I just uh, that I just mentioned um, that is really devastating to Western Samoa. Over 8,000 Samoans died, um, around 20% of the overall population. Uh, Western Samoa is one of the most uh, heavily affected uh, places in the world uh, for, uh, from that Spanish flu. Um, and meanwhile, just across the channel, you know, 40 miles east into Tuila, um, the American naval governor um, does a smart thing and, you know, sort of uh, uh, builds up a Quarantine and doesn't allow ships to to lay anchor, and keeps the this deadly you know H one N one virus out of the island, and uh, no one dies in American Samoa. So this is a, a kind of a major. Um, uh, event, of course, for Samoan history, because so many uh, people in their prime um, succumb to this virus, and it really sort of wipes out a whole generation of leadership, um, um, you know, political leadership, church leadership, uh, and so forth. And um, that's one of the catalysts for the Mao movement, uh, but there are long-standing concerns about the undermining of Samoan cultural and political autonomy that already date back uh, at least uh, to the former German colonial period. Um, and they all sort of come together then in the mid-1920s, late-1920s with the Mao. And um, there's protests, there's violence. Um, and uh, what I'm trying to argue with the book, um, since I sort of end with that, is that if we want to understand the kind of longer history uh, that led up to this uh, more full-fledged uh, anti-colonial protest in, in the Samoan Islands, one has to look at these deeper um, histories of work uh, and of different workers interacting with one another in these different workscapes. Um, so um, one of the ways in which to understand that is, um, for example, to think about the various ways in which workers, you know, found common ground um, through uh, working on plantations, um, through traveling in these ethnographic show troops, but also by gaining, you know, um, other forms of education, say uh, the nurses and soldiers, interpreters that are right about as well. Um, they learned different languages. They learned, uh, you know, how the colonial world works uh, by traveling and interacting with colonial officials. And uh, as in many other colonial contexts, these interracial, um, multilingual, multicultural um, kind of intermediaries became the, uh, the leaders of um, anti-colonial protests also in Samoa. And the most famous example is uh, Olaf Frederick um, Taisi Nelson, uh, who is the son of a, um, English, um, of a Swedish um, mariner and a, and a Samoan woman born in, 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 uh, in Savai'i. And he becomes kind of the, the, one of the central uh, figureheads of the Mao in the 1920s, um, traveling all the way to Geneva to the League of Nations to protest um, what he sees as New Zealand abuses uh, of their mandate um, in, in, in Western Samoa. So this is kind of how I end kind of the precursors to, to Nelson, who was much more famous of, in Samoan history, and there was a recent biography on him as well. Um, my uh, book tries to provide a little bit of a backstory uh, to the lesser known precursors uh, to, to Nelson and other anti-colonial fighters in the 1920s and beyond. 
And then finally, Western Samoa gains its formal independence in, in 1962. So it would take another world war um, uh, and a sort of complicated political decolonial process uh, for Western Samoa to gain its formal independence. They're very proud of it. You know, it's uh, 60 years this year again, um, 1962, 2022, June 1st, very soon. So this is going to be a major event also in Samoa, even though, um, as we know, another pandemic has, has also now reached uh, the Samoan islands. So um, they're quite busy uh, just easing the lockdown and the travel um, restrictions uh, in the wake of COVID-19. So um, the celebrations, I think, this year might be a little bit um, smaller uh, than expected. But um, it's been 60 years and Samoans are quite, quite proud of that. Yes, and I think compared to some other Pacific countries, uh, I'm thinking of Papua New Guinea, where I do my research. Um, there's been relative political stability. Uh, uh, so good on Samoa. There you go. Good on them. There's uh, been some tensions in the last election uh, where the uh, sitting president um, did sort of all in his power to um, not be uh, be deposed. And there was lots of sort of legal wrangling and uh, political fighting over a, a new party that challenged it and ultimately won this election. And we now have the first female um, prime minister of Samoa. Um, so um, there's been there's been some tensions lately, but you're right, sort of overall and maybe sort of relative terms to other uh, Pacific countries like Fiji or um, neighboring Fiji or, or also uh, PNG, um, Samoa has been sort of more stable politically um, w- with maybe costs uh, in, in, in other ways. Yeah, I, th- I think that in the case of Samoa, they've been able to um, take the sort of um, chiefly politics, which are a feature of the long durée in Samoa and um contain it in democratic institutions. And this most recent successful election of the female prime minister, I think, is a a good example of that, as opposed to Fiji, where um, chiefly politics perhaps became more prominent, or Papua New Guinea, where there's um, been a continued quest for political stability, although um, past couple of PMs have been around for a little bit. So yeah, it's a complicated story. Um, a, a lot of these uh, people who we're talking about now, though, who are serving as the politicians, they come from families and trajectories that uh, are part of that last chapter of your book that we've been talking about with reference to um, Nelson, the mediators. You know, just as you point out that the ethnographic performers are, are engaging in labor in a way that might not be familiar to people. Although if you live in a tourist economy like we do in Hawaii, you certainly recognize that as a form of labor. So too, these mediators, many of whom were uh, Hafkasi, uh, who had from, came from interracial unions, um, they had their own unique form of labor. And I guess because they were kind of in the government, but then also kind of the governed, they, maybe they epitomize that tension between colonial globality and, and oceanic globality. Right. And um, I start with one of the, I think, more interesting figures in that context, namely Charles Taylor. That's where I start the book with and his his global travels. Um, 
a bunch has been written about Taylor. Um, uh, there's, you know, sort of, you know, lots of family connections and um, even some, some images around, but there hasn't been, you know, much sort of archival research on him so far. So um, I was really um, struck to find his story and uh, trace his, his, his life uh, as much as I could. Um, it kind of frames the book. I start with it, but I also come back to it in the, in the last chapter. And Taylor is quite interesting. He's um, the son of a, of a British um, a settler in Samoa and a Samoan mother, um, born in the in, in the eighteen seventies, and he's sort of you know prime age twenties thirties um, when uh, the western part of Samoa and he was born in, in near Apia uh, becomes a German colony. Um, his his dad leaves. He's adopted by a German speaking family, so he learns German um, uh, to a to a, a, a um, sort of almost fluency, and he um, makes his way up, uh, does you know sort of odd jobs, and then he joins um, the um, consular administrations before a division and then the German colonial administration um, in in Opolo after after 1900, and he becomes an interpreter because he speaks these different languages. He's fluent and Samoan, um, English, as well as then uh, German. And um, he's traveling uh, to Germany uh, because the German governor, Wilhelm Solf, um, sort of his right-hand man, who really, you know, he needs him. Uh, Solf himself speaks, you know, decent Samoan, but he needs translators in order to translate um, uh, his policies into, you know, reality, uh, or as far as that's even possible. Um, so Taylor is an essential kind of... Um, um, figure and intermediary in that process and he comes to germany actually to to improve his german and he spends some time there um in the early 20th century and uh you know quite interestingly you know visits the wartburg where martin luther you know did some translation work um, a few centuries earlier so he um, i'm not sure if he's actually sort of you know conscious of those you know connections and sort of saw himself in that tradition we don't have that kind of paper trail but we do have letters uh, between taylor and Solf. And they're quite interesting to read because Taylor tries to, you know, straddle the worlds and, you know, he mixes German, English, Samoan, and, and tries to endear himself to what he calls his father, Wilhelm Solf. And it's quite interesting because, you know, the German colonial administration, you know, runs kind of a paternalist uh, program in Samoa. Um, and I, I, you know, insinuated that earlier with this ethnographic capital, um, you know, the German colonial officials in the Pacific colonies in particular and maybe in Samoa um, the most try to differentiate themselves from what from German colonial officials and other European officials elsewhere uh, from being more benign for you know uh, supposedly protecting indigenous cultures uh, from the ravages of you know colonialism and capitalism that they of course brought with them so um, it's full of tensions but it's one of the um, ways in which German colonial officials you know see themselves and Taylor knows this of course and speaks that language um, and tries to get what he wants, uh, mostly money and uh, opportunity to travel um, from uh, his employer, from his boss, from Solf. Um, so he spent some time in Germany, buys, you know, business suits and an umbrella and like, you know, the Western goods and then returns to, to Samoa and has a family, you know, uh, 
the Tongan uh, woman and, you know, has family also then in New Zealand. Um, so um, quite a kind of circum-Pacific, even global life um, that is not, of course, atypical for people um, in between. Um, uh, but this is sort of the Samoan example um, uh, that, I, that I trace and I also write about soldiers and, and nurses uh, in that chapter on intermediaries. Yeah, you know, uh, my own graduate training was um, in the 90s, in the wake of sort of the classic ethnographic history of the uh, of the 1980s. And I feel like there's been so much written now on the 19th century that if you study that, it's it doesn't seem at all surprising that someone from Samoa would, would end up in Germany or anywhere else because people did move around so much. But I think for people today who, you know, are used to having cell phones, and uh, being able to see anything about anything about the world or get on a plane. Uh, For people who aren't familiar with this work, it just must seem amazing or surprising that people from the Pacific could circulate so broadly. But I mean, in fact, they did. Right. And uh, my point is that, you know, Samoans as well as other islanders have been on the move, you know, for a very long time. So in that sense, um, the kind of colonial period uh, not quite a blip, but like, a, you know, a way of um, limiting certain kinds of movements, but also enabling others and also extending um, some of those uh, travel opportunities uh, with the ethnographic shows and people like Taylor. Uh, another example is, is Grace Pepe, who's from Tutuila, and she's actually um, um, uh, recruited uh, by the U.S. Navy to uh, come to Mare Island in San Francisco, California. That's another naval yard there uh, to get medical training. She's one of the first nurses trained by the U.S. Navy uh, in Tutuila. And she's, um, as far as I know, one of the first women, Samoan women from Tutuila who travels to the U.S. mainland um, right after the, the First World War in 1919, stays there half a year, does some training, um, and then returns um, to continue her um, uh, healthcare um, job uh, in Tutuila. She was already a traditional Samoan healer before that, so there's a way in which she um, connects and adapts uh, these different ways of thinking about health and healing um, and in many ways, she becomes actually an important and also political figure, uh, as some other Samoan women do in the women's um, committees in the 1920s that are actually crucial for the Mao, um, in particular in Western Samoa, but also in American Samoa that has its own uh, Mao movement. So Grace Pepe, partly because of her background and her training, um, also becomes a political figure uh, that connects the dots and you know becomes a healer uh, of the wounds inflicted by coconut colonialism. Um, so that's what I what I'm working um, and writing about on uh, in this chapter as well. Yeah, you know, as someone who's from Northern California, I, I love that chapter. I think she was at Vallejo, there's where there's still a big um, uh, hospital uh, over there. I think there's a VA hospital over there still. So I, uh, it was great to see um, people from Samoa coming to you know the area that that I am from originally. So that was that was really interesting. Uh, you know what, uh, before I let you go, I do just want to uh, talk more about what people might think of as the more traditional workers, the people who were building infrastructure and working on um, plantations and coconut plantations. You're not just uh, sort of pushing 
the definition of work or examining, you know, white collar workers. There's a lot in this book about plantations as well. Plantation labor, the movement of um, people to Samoa to work plantations because Samoans themselves would not do it. Uh, and that's that's a part of this story as well. Can you just let the listeners know a little bit about that? I feel like um, plantations are on the menu again for um, people who are interested in comparative plantations, the way plantations continue to shape sort of our imagination of political economy and the rise of palm oil plantations in West Papua. We just had Sophie Chow on the program a little bit ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, that's actually what I started the book out with. Um, we started talking about ethnographic shows. I think that's interesting, um, of course, as well, and explore the connections. Um, but the plantations, you know, this is what um, outlanders were primarily interested in. Um, plantation land, uh, mostly coconuts, uh, copra, the dried meat of the coconut, and um, also cocoa and some rubber, uh, initially even cotton. Um, so uh, that's, that's the the main driver of outside interest and it's of course a long-standing uh, staple um, of Samoan agriculture, the coconut um, and I call this sort of form of sustainable agriculture um, that comes under strain um, during colonialism and these sort of export-oriented foreign-owned plantations uh, but throughout the colonial period Samoans remain the major producers of coconuts um, 60 to 80 percent of the coconuts exported from Samoa actually uh, produce collected, processed, dried by Samoans on their family lots. Um, and that gives them quite uh, important um, uh, economic and then also politically, even military power. Uh, it's a supply of food, right? Coconuts are sort of different from other uh, cash crops that can't be eaten, Um like cotton also, uh, or rubber, um, that, you know, coconuts are also, you know, crucial and quite versatile fruit that, you know, has a lot of calories. It's quite, you know, it's rich in f saturated fat. Um, so it's an, it's an, it's an awesome, you know, fruit, um, in order to survive and do other things with it. Um, and that's one of the reasons also that Samoans, of course, besides the longstanding cultural um, significance that the coconut had for them and other islanders, um, is that they insisted on sort of the limits of commodification of that important fruit crop. Um, and um, so settlers, you know, have to recruit workers from elsewhere because Samoans don't want to do that work on foreign plantations. They're okay to sell surplus copra, but not, you know, um, uh, enter wage labor and other contracts even on plantations. Some do, but very few. Um, so contract workers have to recruit it from elsewhere. And the German trading company in the mid-19th century um, recruits them from other uh, places where they do trade um, in uh, New Guinea, uh, the Solomon Islands, also in Micronesia, Marshall Islands. So um, that's where the first contract workers come from. And then more and more from what would become German New Guinea, that's sort of the east northeastern part of today's uh, Papua New Guinea uh, and also parts of the northern Solomon Islands. Um, and then workers also come from China starting in 1903, uh, several thousands. Um, so in, there's all kinds of tensions between the workers, uh, but on also moments of uh, solidarity and strikes, uh, and then all kinds of interracial um, connections also, including marriages and families uh, that are traced. Um, for example, Chinese workers, you know, sort of, you know, fled from the plantations and absconded, um, had their home governments and inspectors 
inspectors to, you know, check on the working conditions there and improve them. Uh, and then some Melanesian workers, you know, they um, invented a new language, uh, you know, plantation pigeon, uh, Samoan plantation pigeon uh, to communicate um, with each other and with Samoans and other migrant workers, and then also intermarried uh, with um, Samoans. Um, and there's some specific communities in Western Samoa still today that trace their um, heritage to those earliest migrant workers. Um, and as a result, you know, Samoa became the super global place. <laughs> there are around 40,000 people at the turn of the century, uh, only a few hundred Europeans, you know, mostly Germans, British Americans, but then around 1,500 non-Samoan Pacific Islanders, mostly from New Guinea, from Tonga, from Niue, from the Solomon Islands, and also from the Gilbert Islands, which are now part of, of Ikiribas. Um, and then thousands of Chinese workers. So um, in my time period, uh, there's estimates of around 12,000 Pacific Islanders, not from Samoa, and around 4,000 Chinese um, people who um, at one point lived in, in Samoa. Um, so one can see, you know, Apia or, you know, other parts of, of Samoa as one of the more global places in the world, you know, maybe with Port Moresby <laughs> in PNG and, you know, um, maybe Honolulu or Lahaina, uh, um, in, in Hawaii, um, around the Pacific world, at least, is some of the more diverse um, and global places. Uh, so in that sense, you know, global history looks quite different if one looks at it from Pacific islands. Um, and that's partly what I'm, what I'm doing in my, in my book as well. Yeah, well, thanks again for the book. It was, it was really very interesting to read. It was very, very approachable. I hope that anyone who's interested in labor or globalization or uh, Samoa or the Pacific gets a chance to take a look at it. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, you've been very generous with me. You've just finished this book. Do you have any sense about what some of your future research projects might be? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm, the next book that I'm working on is... Um coming back to the United States in some some ways. And so, you know, I teach here. I teach about U.S. territories, including American Samoa. I teach about the U.S. empire. And I teach about warfare uh, and war and military history partly as well. And um, some of that interest then stems, you know, out of this book. Um, I look at sort of the military connections of American Samoa um, uh, and kind of the pipeline of recruitment. And my next book um, looks at um, non-Americans who worked for the U.S. military from the U.S. Civil War to Iraq um, more recently. Um, so um, the Pacific plays a role in that. Um, I'll have have some chapters here on the Second World War and the War of 1898 already before. Um, chapter on, you know, uh, Vietnam uh, and then, you know, more recent wars in the Middle East, looking at um, uh, third country nationals and uh, other migrant workers who are usually not Americans, not U.S. citizens, often, you know, workers of color, um, who um, enable the U.S. Um, you know, military um, to have an expanding global footprint uh, over the course of the last 150 years. So it's called War Workers. And, you know, I just started doing research, so it'll be a little bit uh, till that's done. Um, but I'm working on an article on Solomon Islanders in the Battle of Guadalcanal right now and how they, you know, were key to Allied victory in the Pacific against Japan. And um, I'm writing another article on uh, sex workers and prostitutes in uh, the Vietnam War. So I'm um, sort of staying in the in the labor um, history field, um, but now with more of a, a U.S. focus, but still sort of from a global perspective. 
Oh, that's great. Well, if you want uh, sources on Hawaiians in the Civil War, I know the guy you can get in touch with. So that sounds like a really, really interesting project. And uh, yeah, I look forward to having you on again when it's done. Uh, Holger Drossler, author of Coconut Colonialism, Workers and the Globalization of Samoa. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Alex. Uh, It was really wonderful to chat with you. Thanks again. This has been an episode of New Books Network. So please go ahead and uh, subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using to find more New Books content. And until next time, take care.